الجزيرة بودكاست Khartoum is on fire. After weeks of tension, fighting broke out in the Sudanese capital on Saturday. It was a dramatic breakdown in talks. Just this month, Sudan was supposed to usher in a peace agreement to finally transition from military to civilian rule. Now, for Hiba Morgan, Al Jazeera's correspondent there, it's the noise in Khartoum that tells the story. I call them soundtracks. It could be, you know, continuous firing of machine guns, what sounds like anti-aircraft missiles being fired. And you can sometimes hear the fighter jets overhead. You hear this little whoosh going, and we start counting down to see how many seconds before we hear the big, you know, explosion. It's all got Hiba's ear trained for any new noise. And I think let's do this uh, in the interest of time, yeah? Oh, this, where was that? You know, we have been targeted by a sniper just a short while ago, like about 25 minutes ago. So when I just heard a chef, so sorry, kind of freaked out. Today, a report from the ground in Sudan. We missed getting a shot, I think, just by a few centimeters. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Hiba is based in Khartoum, where she and her colleagues have been under lockdown as conflict engulfs the city around them. We're within these walls, each of us trying to do our jobs and not get killed. After years of coups, protests and political instability, the people of Sudan were getting ready for a new government. But now those plans are at risk as the threat of an all-out civil war looms over the country. The battling parties are the country's army and a powerful paramilitary group known as the Rapid Support Forces. The Rapid Support Forces were meant to be integrated into the army, but there's now a standoff between the RSF and the head of the army. At the heart of the conflict is Sudan's transition to civilian rule, and the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, is the sticking point. It's supposed to be integrated into the army, but disagreement over when and how has led to the edge of war. It's a quickly developing story, and everyone in Sudan right now is caught right in the middle of it, including Hiba, as she was telling our producers as I joined our interview on Monday. So just to give you an understanding, we're caught in the middle of this crossfire. Sometimes we think it's stray bullets, but then we we were told by people around the security of the building that no, they, they, they know that they're snipers and they're targeting us whenever we step outdoors. So we're effectively uh, under lockdown now. We can't, we can't step outside. Wow, Heba, I'm just coming on now. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, when you say us, do they know that there are journalists in the building? They, they know that there are journalists in the building, yes, because uh, we have done a few live hits from outdoors. Um, so, they, so they know that there are journalists in the building, yeah. So for our listeners, it is just after 5 p.m. in Sudan. What is happening where you are right now? Well, we're in the center of Khartoum, right? And this is the heart of the fighting. It's because the uh, general command of the army headquarters are, uh, is nearby. The presidential palace is nearby. Um, 
some of the headquarters of the rapid support forces are nearby. So just because of these locations and these buildings and institutions are so close to each other and in the heart of Khartoum, where we are as well, we were able to hear airstrikes. We can hear the sound of the missiles as they're flying, you know, we just don't know where they're going to land and we can hear them when they land. We can feel the ground shaking sometimes. It's intense aerial bombardment, airstrikes, heavy artillery being fired. You sometimes hear light weapons. It's not clear exactly which kind of weapons are being used, but sometimes you feel like they're super, super close, especially at night. You know, you get a few minutes or a few hours of quietness and you think, okay, this is it, you know, one side is in control and this can finally be over. But then in the early hours, usually around 3 a.m., that's when it starts taking off again. And, um, you know, you can hear the heavy artillery once again and, yeah, until the end of the night. Oh, wow. And so you were telling us that you were just targeted by a sniper, you and your team, your location, right before you went live on air. What was that like? What goes through your mind? We were standing and, you know, this bullet comes through the glass clean and it just lands between me and the cameraman. And my other cameraman was outdoors and he said he was targeted twice. So, yeah, you know, it's it, 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 it was... Shocking, first of all, you know, we froze for a second, we didn't know what to do. Luckily, the other cameraman who was with me was able to warn me to get down and just run for cover. And this is us this afternoon. In the morning, the Al Jazeera correspondent was targeted as well, Al Jazeera Arabic. So yeah, we, we do feel bad. Once we step outside, we're not sure who exactly is uh, shooting mm-hmm. uh, at us, but we do feel that they they know we're here and they're not happy about it. And I think they have made that very clear. And for clarity, the they, do you know who that is? Is that the army? Is that the rapid support forces? Who is that? Well, you don't know who's in control of which building and which institution. We know that there's the two sides are fighting. I mean, when it's the fighter jets flying overhead, you know that these are the Sudanese army because they're the ones with the fighter jets. When you hear the anti-aircraft missiles, you know that those are the RSF. But when you're standing and you get shot at or you hear the bullets flying, you're not sure exactly who's doing it. So we don't know exactly which side is targeting us, but uh, it's definitely, you know, difficult times for us and I can imagine how it is for other people who are without electricity for days, who have no running water or drinking water for days now. And it's even worse for the people who are trapped directly next to the fighting areas, you know, directly next to the general command of the army, directly next to the presidential palace. We're seeing their messages on social media saying that they haven't been able to get food or water. Some of them saying they have to drink toilet water just to be able to stay hydrated. So mm. it, it is it is really difficult times mm. here around the capital. As you mentioned, it is not just you and your team who are in lockdown. Explosions have rocked the capital Khartoum since Saturday with the civilian death toll rising and residents sheltering in their homes. You tweeted a photo of students at a school on Qasr Street trapped in their building on the 15th. 
You see the schoolboys in their uniforms, and these are middle schoolers, but also young elementary school age, primary school. You can tell they're young. And you write that the school lies close to the presidential palace, which is a fighting zone right now. There were operations of individual evacuations happening, and that means, you know, parents of some children try to make it to the school to be able to get their children out when they can. So there are still some students trapped there. There's still some students trapped within other institutions as well. Uh, there's a university nearby where students are also trapped. So it's it's becoming an individual thing, you know. People are trying to take their kids out one by one. This is not something Khartoum is used to, Malikan. Yes, Sudan's history is filled with wars and conflict and displacement, not Khartoum. There's no safety shelter, you know. People don't know where they would go when uh, the airstrikes hit, when the uh, heavy artillery kicks off, you know, they don't know where to go to. And this is the case for many people who I speak to. They say that, you know, we pick the largest room in the house and that's that's where we stay. We get, we get to the center of it because we want to stay away from walls. We want to stay away from windows. And we're hearing that a lot because, again, this is, this is not a city that was prepared for in case of a war. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're talking about, you know, two powerful forces in residential areas, fighting each other off. So it's it's these are times that Khartoum has never had to go through before. Let's let's put it this way. Yeah, you mentioned residential areas. Another thing that seems pretty significant about all of this is where it's happening geographically. There's one building of the Rapid Support Forces that was hit over the weekend, and it's right across the road from the army headquarters and right near the airport. What does all of that tell us about? how concentrated all of this is in Khartoum. First of all, it tells us what the relationship was like between uh, the army and the RSF, or at least the senior command of the army and the RSF. The RSF worked with the military to overthrow Omar al-Bashir in 2019. Two years later, they carried out another coup. Dozens of protesters were killed in the aftermath. Hundreds were arrested. You know, it's clear that because they were so close to each other, their residents were not far from each other. Their soldiers, uh, their, their personal bodyguards would mingle with each other regularly. They were so close because the army did not mind having the RSF so close to to their own headquarters. It's clear to see that their relationship was, was a strong one up until the differences started to emerge. The fact that the RSF were allowed to be in, in areas where there are residential buildings, where there are people living, civilians, showed that they did not account for, should such a day come, what would what would happen? How will they play it out? And yeah, this day has arrived. They're not fighting each other off, and the civilians are quite in the middle. How we got here after the break. This week on the Inside Story podcast, President Daniel Ortega led a revolution in Nicaragua against a repressive regime, but now is accused of running one of his own. Five years after protests were met with a crackdown, what's next for Nicaragua? Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So, Heba, what is all of this about? Why are two rival forces fighting each other, and where did they come from? At the core of it, it's an issue of survival. It started, obviously, when uh, a few months after the military coup in October 2021, 
and we could see the signs of tension between the RSF and the army commander. The commander of the RSF described that military takeover as a mistake that led Sudan to more political turmoil and that there should be talks happening to transition Sudan to civilian rule. But then when they did sit down for talks with political parties, the army wanted to integrate the RSF because, you know, the army is the main institution. And that's where the differences really, really started to appear. They had maintained an awkward alliance since the 2021 coup, but the rivalry between Sudan's de facto head of state and his deputy has now boiled over, following tensions over how their respective forces should be integrated. The RSF wanted to integrate over a 10-year period. Um, the army wanted to, so obviously it's a big gap between two years and 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the issue of who commands uh, the RSF. The RSF wanted the political parties or civilian government to be leading it and the military wanted the RSF to fall under it. So the issue of leadership was was the main, I would say, breaking point between the two sides, because once the RSF falls under the army leadership, they don't exist anymore. And so at the core of this fighting, it's a struggle for power, it's a struggle for survival, it's a struggle for existence for both sides. Because should the army also get defeated, it will be the RSF replacing them. So, Hiba, we'd be remiss to go much further without talking about the two men at the helm of this, the men at the helm of the army and the rapid support forces. And I'm talking about, of course, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, Sudan's military leader, and Mohammed Hamdan Tagalo, or Hameti, the leader of Sudan's paramilitary rapid support forces. How much of this fighting is actually just a rivalry between these two men? I would say the whole entire reason of this fighting is because of the rivalry between the uh, RSF commander and the uh, army chief. You know, both sides want to prove that they're the main um, military in the country and that, that they're the top commander of the forces, of all forces. You know, the RSF leader doesn't want to be the commander of the RSF only, and the army commander doesn't want to be the commander of the army while he has some paramilitary group running around on the other side. Because again, it's an issue of power, it's an issue of control, it's an issue of existence and survival. The army chief obviously has the army, and should he cave into the RSF, there's a chance of having an internal coup, you know, his men turning against him. It's also an issue of fight over resources, because, you know, both have investments, both don't want to lose control of that, both want to take control of the other's investment, because the RSF has vast investments in uh, various parts of the country. They have gold investments. They ship their soldiers to to fight in the war in Yemen on the side of the Saudi coalition. So they do have a lot of uh, wealth. So that's where we are at. So until just last week, everyone was talking about the agreement between the Rapid Support Forces and the army. Sudan's military rulers have once again delayed signing an agreement that would transition the nation from military to civilian rule. The agreement would allow for elections and the formation of a civilian government after over a year of military rule following the October 2021 coup. So what happens to that agreement right now? Because I'm sure no one is, is talking about that at the very moment with fighting happening. Yeah, people are not are not focused on that at the moment. But should this fighting stop and should this fighting end, it, it definitely changes the scales of balance of this whole political process that's been ongoing. So all of this 
what we're seeing right now is going to have a big role to play, whether there are talks after this um, battle is over or whether there will be you know, a resumption of talks under new circumstances. That's if talks even resume because you know, it's not clear if the upper hand would decide that you know, now I'm in charge, I don't need to make mistakes, I don't need to talk about integration, I don't need to form a government with any political party, I can rule on my own. That could also happen. But then again, we'd have to wait and see which side wins. Political parties also will have to figure out how to go about, because even if one side wins, you know, there's still going to have to be negotiations. Yeah. Looking at the big picture, it's so hard to say, but where might Sudan go from here? How does this end? It either ends with the RSF obliterated or with the army no longer in existence. That's how it's going to end. But once this is over, people are going to ask questions. How did the rapid support forces get so powerful? Where was the army when the RSF was amassing all this power and wealth? Um, this is going to be the issue of rebuilding, you know. Who is going to rebuild all these damaged structures, civilian homes that have been destroyed? Who's going to be taking care of that? All these facilities. And again, Sudan was already going through an economic crisis and had developmental problems to begin with. So who's going to start fixing the water facilities, the electricity facilities, the roads that have been damaged by the airstrikes, the buildings that have been hit by the artillery? So many questions people are going to ask. Right now, people are focused on survival, and, and it's understandable, obviously. But uh, sooner or later, once this is over, they're going to start looking around them. And they're going to start wondering, how are they going to rebuild their lives after all this, you know? And if they would be able to rebuild their lives at all. So finally, Heba, people were warning that if an agreement wasn't reached soon, this could lead to the breakout of war. Did you have any idea when we reached out last week about talking about this agreement that this is what we'd be facing now? Did we know if it was coming? Yes. Did we know it was going to happen um, this week? No. Because it was clear the warning signs were there. You know, you could see troop movements from both sides. You could see both sides not talking to each other. Bear in mind that one is the commander and the other is his deputy. So if you have those two sides, both armed, both powerful, not talking to each other, and um, an agreement for a transitional government being installed, and troops moving around the country, all of that were warning signs that something was bound to happen. It was just an issue of when and not if. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ashish Malhotra and Nagin Oliai, with Amy Walters, Chloe Kaylee, Miranda Lynn, Sonia Bagat, Khaled Sultan, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Adam Abugad and Munira Al-Dusari are our engagement producers. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs> 